welcome to the vineyard. We're so glad you chose to spend part of your weekend with us. This year, we've been journeying through the one-year Bible. And if you have not had a chance yet to pick up your Bible, which is free, uh, you can go today to the south entrance. We got a brand new shipment of them in, and we'd love to give this to you as a gift. Some of you want to follow along digitally, and I have really loved doing the YouVersion app alongside as I have my Bible in front of me. And we can help you, if you go to the South Entrance, we can help you get synced up with the reading plan so you can join us. Because I don't know about you, but this has been such a fun adventure to do together. I have loved reading together. And I wanna encourage you that if you're behind or you haven't started, that's okay. In fact, if you missed a day, you got it. In fact, if you've missed many days, if you've missed a week, if you've fallen off the bandwagon, I wanna encourage you today that you can join back in. This is the beauty of the one-year Bible. At any point, you can jump back in and you can join us in reading because this is what we know. God's word is one of the most transformational tools that we have, and he wants to meet us in these pages. He wants the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to reveal things to us. And so I wanna encourage you today that you can start fresh again today or tomorrow or anytime and join us. I'm gonna share what God has given me for this week, but I'm gonna start first by just praying and inviting the Holy Spirit to be our teacher today. And so I'm gonna do that. Holy Spirit, we welcome you today to be the teacher. Thank you for the gift of your word. God, we pray now that you give us ears to hear what you have for each of us. We welcome you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, each week in this series, we have been sharing something from the weekly reading that stood out to us, taking a deeper look, and we're gonna do that today. But before we do that, um, I'm going to give us a tool that we can use as we're reading God's word that helps us in our transformation journey. And that tool is the tool of asking questions. Now, they've done some research, and they've discovered that four-year-olds ask between 200 and 300 questions a day. Now, I have a four-year-old, so I can confirm that this is true, because from the moment that our daughter wakes up, questions just tumble out of her. Mom, what day is it today? Is it a school day, a home day, or a church day? Those are the categories that she needs to know what her day is going to be like. Mom, I found this Hershey kiss. Can I have it for breakfast? Never too early for sugar. Can I wear shorts today? In the dead of winter. Mom, why is orange juice orange? I'm like, oranges are orange. I, I don't know. Why do I have to do my hair today? Now, if you have curly hair, you understand the pain of doing your hair every single day. They ask so many questions. Why do preschoolers ask questions? Well, because they're learning and they're growing and they're developing and they wanna know the who's and the how's and the what's and the why's. Now, they've also done research on adolescents and how many questions do you think teenagers generally ask in a day? Three. I also have teenagers, and I can confirm this. It's usually something like, do we have any chips? I'm like, excuse me? Do we have any chips? I can't hear you. Do we have any chips? Yes, we have some chips. Or, why isn't my brother emptying the dishwasher? Well, because he's taking out the trash. I'm so glad we're so concerned with everyone else. Now, they have done research then on adulthood, and we do actually rebound. You know, adults ask between 25 and 30 questions a day depending on the field that we're in, because as it turns out, when we become adult, we figure out that we don't know the answer to every single problem. So questions are good and questions are part of life. 
When you think about yourself, are you a person who asks questions? Asking questions is a very important relational tool. How many of you have ever been in a conversation with someone where they asked you zero questions? It is miserable. It is one-sided. And I don't know about you, but when I have conversations like that, I want to get out of there. Because good relationships are relationships where we ask one another questions, where there's a natural curiosity, where we learn from one another, we share experiences from, with one another. And in the same way, we are in relationship with God our Father, and we want to have a conversation with Him. We don't want to be the only person talking. We want to listen to what He has to say to us. And so we want to ask questions when it comes to spending time devotionally with Jesus. You know, here's the truth. When we don't ask questions when we read, we do something that I like to call rote reading. Rote reading. And what do I mean by that? Well, rote reading, it doesn't explore the text. It doesn't ask questions. It is quick. It's to, you know, get it done. You know, on the YouVersion app, there's like the little thing that you click through, like when you've read, and that, that just gives us so much satisfaction. But sometimes that can go too far when we're just doing it to get it done. In rote reading, we're often kind of reading for the information, but we're not reading for transformation. What we want to do is we want to relationally read the text, not rotely read the text, but relationally read the text. And we do that by asking questions. And that's because part of the purpose of the Bible is laid out in a scripture itself. So let's go to 2 Timothy 3. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. And this is what he says. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. One of the purposes of the Bible is to teach us, is to help us learn so that we can be fully capable and equipped for what God has called us to do. And in order for this to happen, in order for us to learn, to be taught, we must engage with the text. And one of the best ways to engage is by using the powerful tool of asking questions. Questions help us stimulate creative thinking and critical thinking. They help us to remember what we've read or listened to. Again, we wanna be lifelong learners. And the Bible is one of those tools that God has given to us to help us learn as he leads us relationally. So with that being said, I'm gonna give us two questions today, two very simple questions that we can read every single day as we interact with our daily readings. Okay, are you ready for the first question? It's very challenging. Okay, the first question is, what? Yeah, that's the first question, what? What did I just read? What happened in this text? What stood out to me? What is the Holy Spirit saying? What do I notice about the bigger picture of the Bible? Where do I see Jesus in this story? So the very first question as you're engaging, when you get done with the passage, pause, and you're gonna ask yourself what? Okay, what did I just read? Okay, are you ready for the second question? It is equally as challenging. What now? So this week, as you pick up your Bible, you're gonna say what, and then you're gonna say what now. And in this question, what you're gonna say, what you're gonna ask yourself is, well, what difference does this passage make in my life? What am I gonna do now in response to what I just read? This is where our application comes in. And so with these two simple questions, what 
and what now? I believe the Holy Spirit will meet us in these pages and help us see where we need to change and grow and yes, be transformed. Well, today I'm gonna share one of the most powerful stories on relationships, especially family relationships. Now, do any of you struggle with family relationships? Now, I know you're hesitant to raise your hand or nod your head because you're sitting by your family. And I understand that pain, but look at me. I see you. I know what's happening. Because the truth is, so often our families are filled with things like pain and jealousy and fighting. Yes, alongside love and fun and laughter and good times too. I am from a big family myself. And so I know that relationships can be messy, but I also know this, that God's heart as our father is that we would love and listen and learn to forgive one another. And that's not easy. We're gonna need the Holy Spirit's help. And so as I tell and read Joseph's story today, I want us to look through the lens of the what and what now questions. What is going on relationally with this family? And then what now? How can we respond? And what does it mean for us, especially as we think about our relationships and our family? Okay, so with that, let's jump in. This past week, we finished reading Genesis, uh, which is the first book of the Bible, and we have been chronicling the story of Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and now Jacob has 12 sons, and one of Jacob's sons is a very important man named Joseph. The, uh, The book of Genesis is 50 chapters long, and a quarter of this book is dedicated to the story of Joseph. And so today, for us to better understand the text we're gonna read, I need to summarize some of what has happened in Joseph's story. And so we've made a fun little timeline. Are you ready? So we first meet Joseph when he is born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. And you know, right from the very beginning of Joseph's story, there is favoritism, right from the very beginning. After suffering from infertility, Rachel and Jacob are are blessed with their first son. And then several chapters later, we learn how much Jacob adores his son, Joseph, when he gives Joseph a beautiful coat of many colors. Now, this gift sparks so much jealousy among the brothers, and they realize how much their father loves Joseph and really how important he is in the family. And because of this, his brothers hate him. Joseph's special treatment was deeply painful. Now, this gets even worse when Joseph has some dreams. Joseph has two dreams, and in these dreams, he, it's symbolic that his family is going to bow before him. That symbolizes his future authority, and he shares his dreams with his brothers like any little brother would do, and they go over like you'd expect, like a lead balloon. These brothers were not particularly happy with the dreams. So Joseph's arrogance further angered his brothers. First it's the coat, now it's the dreams. And the truth is, as I tell this story, many of you can relate to pain and frustration when it comes to family favoritism. The brothers were also scared for their future. Let's cut them a little bit of slack. It appeared that Joseph was going to be the family heir and he was arrogant. They're like, this guy's not gonna take care of us. He doesn't care about us. They had experienced him in a painful and difficult way. And so this leads them to decide to get rid of their brother. And at first they're going to kill him, but instead Reuben convinces the brothers, let's just throw him in this empty cistern. And then Reuben was gonna come back and save him. But in the meantime, it is Judah who convinces the rest of the brothers, let's sell him into slavery. There's a caravan coming here and they could take him to Egypt and we could sell him and be rid of him. And the brothers think this is a good idea. 
And so this big brother who's filled with hatred and jealousy does this despicable deed. And then the brothers take that beautiful coat and they dip it in goat's blood and then they take it back to their father and they let him assume that Joseph is dead. But Joseph is not dead. He is on his way to Egypt and now he's gonna have a really up and down journey while he's there and a bunch of stuff happens. I'm gonna go kind of fast through this. He becomes a trusted servant in Potiphar's house, but then he is imprisoned after getting falsely accused of wrongdoing. Joseph then gains favor while he's in prison and he interprets some dreams but he is forgotten. Eventually, he is called by Pharaoh to interpret some troubling dreams that Pharaoh had about the future. And he interprets these dreams, telling Pharaoh there's gonna be a time of plenty and then a time of famine. And he gives Pharaoh a plan. And because of this, Pharaoh puts him second in command. He gets out of prison. And then in chapter 41, the famine comes. Now, there's going to be a series of tests, and this is where we're going to be at in our text today. There's three tests. The first test is all about drama. Okay, so again, relationally, what is happening here? What happens is there's no grain, and so Jacob says to his sons, sons, go to Egypt, get the grain, and so the 10 brothers go, they leave Benjamin at home, and Joseph accuses them of being spies. And they're like, we're not spies, we promise. How could we, you know, how could we prove to you that we're not spies? And Joseph says, the only way you can prove to me that you're not spies is if you bring the youngest brother back and I'm gonna keep one of the brothers here. And so they leave one brother, they go home, they tell Jacob, well, Jacob is totally distraught because Benjamin has become his favorite son. And he's like, oh my goodness, we can't do this. But it is Judah who steps up and says, I'm gonna be responsible. I'm gonna take on responsibility for Benjamin, but we're gonna die if we don't get this grain. And so they go back and so they pass the first test because they take Benjamin with them. And the second test comes when they return and Joseph makes them a big meal and he puts them in age order because of course he knows who they are. They still don't recognize him. And he gives five times the amount of food to Benjamin. He's testing to see if they're jealous and they pass this test. And so he comes up with one final test, and this is what we're going to look at today. And so you want to go to Genesis 44, if you're following along. And this is from our reading from Monday, January 22nd. So Joseph has given his brothers the grain that they need, and then he tells his palace manager, he he says, okay, listen, what you're going to do is you're going to put back the money, and you're going to put my special silver cup in the top of the grain bag, but you need to put it in my brother Benjamin's sack, and then they're going to be on their way. As soon as they leave, he tells his palace manager, okay, now go and run out and stop them and say, one of you stole my cup and whoever did has to come back and be a slave. And it's all this big setup. And so the palace manager follows Joseph's instructions. And when he gets to the brothers and he's like, someone stole my master's silver cup, the brothers are like, whoa, like we would not do that. We are innocent. In fact, we're so sure we're innocent. Who, if, if you find the cup, you should put that person to death. Well, the brothers put their sacks down and they begin to open them up one by one by one. And Benjamin is the youngest. And so he's last and they open it up and there's a silver cup. And the brothers are distraught because they realize what has happened. And so they must return to Joseph and they fall down before Joseph, bowing before him, confirming again the dream that Joseph had had two decades earlier. They're desperate to save their beloved brother. We're gonna pick up in verse 16. And Judah is gonna make this impassioned plea to Joseph. Now, as a reminder, we talked about Judah last week, and this guy has had a lot of struggles in his life. He's not raised good sons. His first son was taken by the Lord because he was wicked. His second son was disobedient and also died. He himself did not honor God's law or his daughter-in-law. 
And so he has a lot of bad choices that he's made. He also has a tough personal history with, with Joseph. Remember, Judah is the one who said, let's sell him. Now, we don't wanna read this passage rotely. We wanna read this passage relationally. So we have two questions. What and what now? Let's see what Judah says. This is picking up in verse 16. And this is a little bit longer passage, so just stick with me. Judah answered, oh my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. My Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had, his, who had your cup in his sack. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. Then Judah stepped forward and said, please, my Lord, let your servant just say one word to you. Please do not be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. My Lord, previously you asked us, your servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we responded, yes, my Lord. We have a father who is an old man and his youngest son is the child is a child of his old age. His full brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him very much. And you said to us, bring him here so I can see him with my own eyes. But we said to you, my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for his father would die. But you told us, unless your youngest brother comes with you, you will never see my face again. So we returned to your servant, our father, and told him what you said. Later, when he said, go back again and buy us more food, we replied, we can't go unless you let our youngest brother go with us. We will we'll never get to see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then my father said to us, as you know, my wife had two sons and one of them went away and never returned. Doubtless, he was torn to pieces by some wild animal. I have never seen him since, but... Or now, if you take his brother away from me and any harm comes to him, you will send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Okay, you can read a passage like that and then you can just keep reading and you can go on. But if you want to relationally read, we must pause and ask questions. And so the very first question is just what? What happened in this passage? Now, Judah starts off this passage by explaining, listen, we are innocent of this crime, but we are guilty of plenty of others. And he believes that God is punishing them for the, for the sins of the past. And he offers, he says, not only will I stay, all the brothers will stay and we will be your slaves. And of course, Joseph dismisses that. He's like, well, that's not really necessary. And so what I love here is that Judah leans in and he takes a step forward and he's gonna build a case. And what he's doing is he's trying to remind Joseph, like this is how we got here in the first place. How we got here in the first place is you asked. And so let me remind you of, of how our, this, you know, this whole situation came to be. And then Judah goes on to explain the family history. And he explains to Joseph why Benjamin is so important to Jacob. And I want you to think about this for a moment. From Joseph's point of view, this is the first time that Joseph has heard what his father has been told about his disappearance. 
want you to think about the emotion of that moment. Joseph hasn't known. He didn't know what his brothers went home and what story was spun to his father. But in this moment, he is told what Jacob has been told. And I can only imagine the pain and the emotion that he must have felt. And Judah, he, he's so bold. He makes it clear to, to, to Joseph. He says, you know, without Benjamin, my father is going to die. It's so serious that I took responsibility. I told my father, I'm gonna take the blame if he does not return. And I want you to think about the attitude shift that we're seeing here from when Judah was dealing with Joseph to now how Judah is relating to Benjamin. In the end, he makes this shocking offer. He says, take my life for the boy's life. And so what we see is this beautiful transformation in Judah where he goes from selling his brother to saving his brother. And what stood out to me is, is just this beautiful transformation, really, of all the brothers. They've been through these different tests. They've had many opportunities to show their true colors, and their true colors are that they have changed. They are no longer jealous. They are no longer pitted against one another. And then, specifically, we see how much Judah has changed. How, you know, this is a man who's made a lot of mistakes, and I really believe this is to encourage us. Here, here's some of the mistakes that Judah's made. He... he proposed selling Joseph into slavery. He participated in the looting of Shechem with his brothers. He disregarded God's law by marrying a Canaanite woman. He failed to raise children that feared the Lord. He engaged in temple prostitution. He violated God's laws for providing an heir for Tamar. He's full of mistakes, but he has changed. Judah is no longer the jealous, spiteful, older brother looking out for himself and his own interest. Instead, he has become selfless. He is willing to give up his own life so that his younger brother can go free. And again, let's remember, Jacob and, and Judah's relationship, father-son relationship, it's complicated. Judah knows that first Joseph was his favorite, and then now Benjamin's his favorite. And again, favoritism is truly painful in our families, and yet Judah rises above these feelings, and he allows love to fuel his actions. He's made a ton of mistakes, but right now, in this moment, he steps in to the destiny that's on his life. And what I love is that the Bible tells one story. Because God transforms Judah, he takes him from one of the worst sinners in the family of Abraham, and he makes him the line of the Lion of Judah, the Messiah. This is the incredible story of Jesus. You see, Judah's substitution, like his offer of substitution, where he offers to sacrifice himself, it's foreshadowing of what his future uh, relative, what his you know, future offspring would do as Jesus steps in for our place and says, I did not do it, but I am willing to sacrifice my life for them. This is the message of the gospel. And if we don't ask questions, you could have just read that and you could have missed it all. And so the next question is, what now? What difference does it make in, in my life? What's my response right now? I think like Judah, some of us have made some mistakes relationally. Some of us are stuck in a cycle of making the same mistakes in our relationships. And others of us, as we look in our past, we are filled with so much shame and guilt over things that we've done. And even though we're not still doing them, maybe it feels like it's impossible that your family relationships could ever change. This passage shows us how our decisions so deeply affect our relationships. And I think for some of us right now, we know that our decisions and our mistakes have really, really hurt people. But what I love about this passage is that it points to the transforming power of God in our lives. 
we can change. Where relationships have been broken by our behavior, God can do the impossible. And that's what I believe God wants to speak to us. I think he wants to put a seed of hope in our hearts. And so what can we do now? How can we participate in transformation when it comes to our relationships? This is just a very simple step. I'm not saying this is the only step, but this is what I sense the Holy Spirit inviting us into, repentance. It's not a very popular word. And some of that is because we are confused about what does it mean to repent? Often we've thought of repentance as like, well, I say I'm sorry. And repentance is, it is that we are sorry, but there's more to it. Repentance is when we change our mind, when we change our direction. And what ends up happening is when we say, that's not right, that's not who I wanna be, I'm gonna change, we change our behavior because our beliefs are tied to our behavior. You see, when we say yes to Jesus, we believe and receive what he's done for us. And the Bible tells us that our transgressions, our sins are removed as far as the East is from the West. And so when we repent that first time to Jesus, he takes care of the sin problem. Now, that does not mean that you, that you, you no longer sin. I wish it did. We should be sinning less and less. But when we sin now, it's not And so when we sin now and we repent, it's not so that we can get saved again. You are saved when you repent and believe in Jesus. But we must be in the habit of repenting, of reminding ourselves of our righteousness, because the truth is sin stinks and it hurts God and it hurts us and it hurts our relationships. And so for some of us, it's as simple as saying, okay, Father, help me, help me repent. It's often the first step in transformation and it opens the door for you to be able to partner with the Holy Spirit to do the next right thing, to to help fix what's been lost or broken or damaged because of our choices. So we repent. And that's oftentimes we repent, we're repenting to God and we're repenting to others. We go to them if we can and we ask for forgiveness and we're humble. When we repent, we open the door to making things right. Okay, I wanna keep reading just a little bit more in this story because there's just a little bit more that happens. I don't wanna leave us on that cliffhanger, right? It's like the, the dramatic scene in a movie. Judas just made this impassioned plea and Joseph has all the power. He could hurt them, he could enslave them, he could kill them, or he could have mercy. So what is he going to do? And I like to imagine moments like this. What must that room have felt like as they waited for Joseph's response? Well, Joseph is unable to hold his emotion in, and he actually tells all the attendants to leave, and then he begins to weep, and I'm going to pick up in verse 3 now. I'm in chapter 50, and this is what Joseph says to his brothers. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please, come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he again He said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. The famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and everything you own. 
okay, what? What happened? Well, Joseph reveals himself. He's like, I am your long lost brother. Now, sometimes, you know, we can think to ourselves like, how did they not know? Well, it's been 20 years. He's dressed as an Egyptian. He tells them, come closer, come closer. You need to see. And then he explains to them, don't be upset. And as I was reading the text this week, do you want to know what I noticed? He said in that little, those, that was like six verses. He said three times, God sent me. He said, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. And he is trying to help them overcome their shame, their embarrassment over what they did. And he, he's reframing it for them. He's, he's saying, listen, not only did God send me here, God also made me in charge of all this stuff in Egypt. And God did this because he wanted to save our family. You see, the family of Abraham is so important to God that God orchestrated all of these things to work together. So then my mind goes, okay, what does this show us about God? Well, it shows me, again, God, you're out ahead of us. You know what's coming. You know what, what I'm gonna face. What, what others mean for harm, you mean for my good. Basically, what, what Joseph is saying to his brothers is, listen, your ploy, God's plan. This should give us confidence as we go through things to know that God is good. Now, sometimes people say like, well, did God want Joseph to really suffer and, and be in pain and go through all that hard stuff? Well, no, and maybe. And what do I mean by that? Well, I think sometimes as Christians, we get this idea in our head that we're never gonna suffer. And that's not what Jesus said. Now, does Jesus cause our suffering? I do not believe he does. I believe what he does is he works together to make everything work out for our good. This is how the apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God is good, the enemy is bad, but we need to know this. Sometimes we're gonna go through suffering and suffering's gonna shape us. And that is what happened with Joseph. The suffering shaped him. He didn't allow it to shut him down. You know what else I noticed in this passage? The power of forgiveness. Joseph had every right to kill his brothers, to make them suffer. And what does he do? He goes above and beyond. He's like, listen. He keeps saying to them, like, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, God, could we be filled with that much grace that when we are wronged, and I mean we are really wronged, that we would have the grace that Joseph shows us here. And so what kind of difference does this make in our life right now when we read a story like this? I mean, there are so many things that the Holy Spirit could speak to you about. But I just sensed that we're supposed to zero in on this forgiveness thing because so many of us have been hurt by other people. You know, perhaps it's your family, perhaps it's someone that's close with you and you're really tempted to reject them, to shut them out, to hold a grudge. Forgiveness is so often not our first response. It's not. You know, it feels easier to, to, to replay what happened or to stay angry or stay frustrated. And often I think that's because we're confused about what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not forgetting what happened. Forgiveness is not saying that you need to be a doormat and give people full access. Forgiveness is not fair. It's not natural often. But the truth is this, forgiveness is freedom. It is an intentional choice to let go of anger and resentment and cancel the debt. And truthfully, the only way that we can to truly forgive on a regular basis is to understand that we have been forgiven. 
that we are filled with his spirit and we cannot do it in our own strength, but with Jesus, we can do it all. If we hold on to unforgiveness, there can be so many terrible ramifications. And I know some of your stories and there's some very serious things that you've walked through. Let me tell you just quickly a story that happened to me when I was a sophomore in college and how the Holy Spirit worked forgiveness in my heart. When I was a sophomore, I went through kind of a tough season. My roommate left school. Some of my teammates quit volleyball. I wasn't happy with my major. And so I was feeling pretty restless and angsty. And so I came up with a plan. And that plan was that I was gonna reinvent my life. I was going to transfer schools. I was gonna change my major to communications. And I was gonna quit volleyball. I was basically gonna become a different person. And so I was very excited about this plan. And I went to my mom and my dad and I laid it all out full of optimism, only to be met with the realism of a father who immediately pulled out a calculator. And I will never forget this conversation. I was on a full scholarship and my dad whips out the calculator and he's doing a couple numbers. And he says to me, I will give you my blessing if you can find a job that will pay you $100 a day. And he said, I checked around. Some of the fast food places around you are are hiring for about $5 an hour. It's gonna be hard to sleep and eat if you need to make $100 a day. I think you can do it. Now, insert teenage eye roll here. I don't think he saw my eyes for a few minutes after that, but I have the gift of persuasion. So I went back to my dad and really tried to persuade him. And he said, no. And so I relented. And I begrudgingly stuck it out at Olivet, staying in my major, sticking with volleyball, and sulking for a few months. Now, thankfully, we were 70 miles apart, so I didn't have to see his face too often, and that was good with me until it was time for summer, and I knew I was going to be home. And that summer, I felt so challenged because I was so angry at my dad. And I realized through the Holy Spirit's help that I was going to have to deal with the bitterness that I had allowed to grow in my heart because I was miserable. I knew that holding on to this anger wasn't good. And so what I did was I went to Jesus first and I said, Father, help me forgive my dad. And through a series of events, I was able to start having conversation with my dad again. And then the Holy Spirit told me that I needed to ask my dad for forgiveness because I had not treated him well. Later, he told me he was absolutely furious with me and he wanted to really yell and scream at me, but the Lord had given him that calculator trick, so he stuck with that plan. (laughs) Can I just tell you, I was so mad. I felt so misunderstood, but what happened, it was when we walked through this process of forgiveness, he could see me and I could see him. I could see, okay, he doesn't want to ruin my life, and he could see, oh, she needs some encouragement in this season. And what began to happen that summer is that a trust and a love began to grow that has really fueled my life because I didn't know that I was going to take this job. I didn't know that I was going to need him as much as I needed him. And what's amazing is it wasn't my dad's plan that I stayed at Olivet. It was God's plan because six months later, I'd get a new teammate who had a pretty cute older brother and I would meet Mike. And then I would finish my teaching degree and it gave me the clarity and the confidence to know this. I'm a teacher. That's the gift that God's given me and it's a gift that I want to enjoy and a gift that I want to steward. I want to tell you this, that nothing can stop God's plan in your life. It is bigger and better and more beautiful than you can imagine. And when we think that others can stop it, we need to ask Jesus for just fresh grace again. I know that that's a simple example of forgiveness, but I wanna tell you, I think that in the big things and the little things, Jesus wants to meet us today with forgiveness. He wants us to remember that no matter what we are, we can be transformed.
no matter where we're at in that journey, when we engage relationally with the text. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna worship and I'll come back up and do some ministry. Would you stand if you're able? Jesus, we're so grateful. And we invite you now, Holy Spirit, as we worship for you to do what only you can do. To show us, God, where we're holding on to unforgiveness or fear. God, to help us change where we need to change. And so we say, come Holy Spirit as we worship you now in Jesus' name, amen.